Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Aura Ogunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ukraine's forces are running low, among other things, on the kinds of munitions that get dropped from drones. But they've got plenty of raw explosives. We meet the network of volunteers inside and outside Ukraine who are 3D printing candy bombs. And... Living in New York is incredibly expensive. Trust me, I'd know. But there are a number of other American cities that have become increasingly unaffordable, especially for people who live alone. Meet our Carrie Bradshaw Index. First up, though... Donald Trump has been indicted. Again. Yes, I know, but just stick with us. The latest set of charges come from a prosecutor in the state of Georgia, Fannie Willis. Today, based on information developed by that investigation, a Fulton County grand jury returned a true bill of indictment, charging 19 individuals with violations of Georgia law arising from a criminal conspiracy to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election in this state. Don't worry, we won't read you all 97 pages of it. The former American president is facing around 20 criminal investigations and civil lawsuits. When you add this latest indictment, he's now up against a total of 91 felony charges. Mr Trump has denied them all, but this one will present him with some new and tougher challenges. Fanny Willis, who is the district attorney in Fulton County, Georgia, has charged Donald Trump with racketeering and with 12 other felonies. John Prido is our US editor and co-hosts Checks and Balance, our podcast on American politics. The indictment paints Mr Trump as being at the centre of a conspiracy to overturn Georgia's election results. And now remind us exactly how he's alleged to have done that. Well, the most famous piece of evidence in this case is a phone call that was made public where Donald Trump called Brad Raffensperger, who's the Secretary of State in Georgia, and Donald Trump called him and said that he needed to find 11,780 votes for Trump. So, look, all I want to do is this. I just want to find... uh, 11,780 votes. That was the precise number plus one that would have swung Georgia from Joe Biden to Donald Trump and had a big effect on the outcome of the 2020 election. So that's perhaps the piece of evidence that people know about, but the indictment is full of 
other bits of evidence as well and other charges relating to this general plan to nullify the election result in Georgia. And the prosecutor's argument is that altogether this constituted a solicitation of election fraud, which is a crime in Georgia. Okay, but John, if I understand this correctly, these charges aren't quite like the others. Tell me why these ones are so unusual. They're unusual for a bunch of reasons, sorry. One is that it's a case brought under state law. That means that were Donald Trump to be convicted, which just a double underline is a very long way away and is a big if, were that to happen, neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump nor any other future president would be able to pardon Mr. Trump. The other thing is that the charges make use of a Georgia state law, there's also a federal equivalent, called the Racketeer Influenced and Corrupt Organizations Act, which is far better known as RICO. Somebody convicted under these laws can face a jail sentence of between five and 20 years. This is a kind of law that was brought in to make it easier to prosecute the sorts of sprawling conspiracies you get in organized crime, but since then has been quite widely used for other kinds of prosecution. So, for example, Fanny Willis, who's the DA in Georgia, has already used the same sorts of laws to indict schoolteachers in a test cheating scandal in Georgia. So that makes the case unusual as well. Wait, John, I know about the RICO Act because it's been used to prosecute a bunch of Atlanta-based rappers. Why would that be used against a former president? Feels a bit unusual. Definitely unusual that a president would be hit with this. But, Ori, your observation about rappers is really interesting because there's been some criticism generally of the way in which prosecutors use RICO quite broadly. I mean, the laws were introduced, as I said, to make it easier to go after organised crime, where it can be really hard to prove that there's a conspiracy because people are very careful to cover their tracks. And since it was introduced, as quite often happens, prosecutors have found it really useful to go after other groups of people. And in the case of rappers who've been accused of RICO or caught up in those sorts of things, there's definitely a feeling among defendants that these laws are used a little too expensively and that prosecutors can create the appearance of a conspiracy where there is none. What has Donald Trump had to say about this latest indictment? Well, perhaps unsurprisingly, he's attacked Miss Willis. Her office, the district attorney, is an elected one. She's a Democrat. He said it's politically motivated. And as he often does, he's accused her of the thing that he stands accused of, namely election interference. This marks the fourth act of election interference by crooked Joe Biden and the communist Democrats who are absolutely destroying our country. His election campaign described her as a rabid partisan who's filed bogus indictments to interfere with the 2024 presidential race and damage the dominant Trump campaign. Ms. Willis, of course, has rejected those accusations. I make decisions in this office based on the facts and the law. Um, the law is completely nonpartisan. That's how decisions are made in every case. We look at the facts, we look at the law, and we bring charges. So once again, Donald Trump is trying to make this trial into a trial about the legal system itself. And this time, the indictment goes beyond just Mr. Trump. Yeah, that's a really notable feature of the indictment. Or the last one that you discussed on the intelligence, the Jack Smith one related to January the 6th, that was very careful to focus the prosecution just on Mr. Trump. This one names 18 of Mr. Trump's associates in this co-conspiracy. They're accused of drawing up a scheme to manufacture a full slate of electors in order to award 
all 16 of Georgia's Electoral College votes to Mr. Trump. They're accused of tampering with election machines. There's a detail in the indictment, which I thought was pretty interesting, where it says members of the enterprise raided a polling station and stole voting data in attempt to prove shady business. This was all with the aim of getting Mike Pence, Donald Trump's vice president, to somehow overrule Joe Biden's narrow win in Georgia or let the election be decided in Congress, which might have favoured Donald Trump. And John, just give us a run through of the other indictments that Mr. Trump is facing. Yes, sure. He has been indicted four times in the past five months. There's this indictment in Georgia. There's the federal one related to January the 6th. Then there's a charge that relates to the mishandling of classified documents. And then there's one in New York, which is about falsifying of business records. It's important to note, of course, that Donald Trump has denied all wrongdoing in relation to all four indictments. But they will all be running at the same time as the Republican primary. The Republican primary, the first debate between candidates is held next week. And then voting starts early in 2024. And given the complexity of these cases and given that Donald Trump's legal team will try and delay the trial as much as they possibly can, this will all drag on beyond the 2024 election in which Donald Trump is overwhelmingly likely to be one of the two parties nominees. But John, all of this doesn't seem to be affecting his support within the Republican Party. No, if anything, Ori is the opposite. He fundraises on the back of these indictments. They are costing him quite a lot of money. That's money that he won't be spending on campaigning. But I think I'd argue he doesn't really need to campaign in the Republican primary. The way the dynamic seems to work in the Republican primary is that, if anything, the most prominent candidates leap to his defence whenever there's an indictment and repeat his argument that this is all a conspiracy by Democrats trying to take Donald Trump out of contention for the election. And it's really hard to see how, having made Donald Trump a martyr of the legal system, one of those candidates can overtake him. So he's in a very, very strong position in the Republican primary. I'd be pretty shocked if he wasn't the nominee. But he will likely be a nominee who still has four very serious criminal cases hanging over his head when voters go to the polls in November next year. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Ori. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. In the past year and a half, Ukraine has deployed millions of factory-built munitions. And despite Western arms shipments, stocks are running low. How to deal with that shortage as the war grinds on? As seen so often in this conflict, the answer has been innovation and solidarity. 
Ukraine has developed a vibrant network of uh, volunteers. They've been 3D printing all sorts of items for military use. Uh, tail fins for hand grenades, trench periscopes, mechanisms to drop bombs from commercial drones that have been converted for military use. Benjamin Sutherland writes about technology for The Economist. The country has had a lot of shortages with factory munitions, but it has a lot of bulk explosive C4, that type of stuff. And when you add Ukrainian ingenuity to the mix, what this uh, ecosystem has developed is a type of homemade bombshell known as candy bombs. Okay, so what is a candy bomb then? A candy bomb is a 3D printed bombshell, typically a nose cone, a body, and a tail fin. These pieces are glued together after ball bearings, nails, metal scrap, some other type of metal is put in it for shrapnel, and uh, a central cylinder is packed with C4 or another type of bulk plastic explosives, which remain abundant in Ukraine. And the network that you describe who's, who's making these candy bombs, how does that network operate? So recently in Kyiv and in areas surrounding Ukraine's capital, I met with a number of these bomb makers. Uh, one of them goes by the nom de guerre, ADV. He told me how they operate. Uh, in this process, participate many people. Once of uh, people have knowledge of bombs, other people modulate these bombs, and other people printed part of these bombs on 3D printer. In my own garage, it's about five or ten people, and we make the last step of the manufacturing bomb. We called our bombs our Zaychik. The group refers to their candy bomb as Zaychik, which is the Ukrainian word for rabbit, and their team is turning them out as fast as possible, but the demand for the ordnance they produce is absolutely astonishing. Uh, we uh, produce about 1,000 per week, but Army Force of Ukraine need 10,000 per day. ADV also told me that all of their production is financed by their own money and money donated by friends and family. We, uh, we, not, we, we not receive money from the Minister of Defense. We uh, make bomb from donate. A lot of these guys are understandably edgy. Some of them are telling me that their names, or at least their pseudonyms, are popping up in Russian Telegram chat groups with bounties on their heads, so they're trying to keep as low a profile as possible. A lot of these candy bombs are coming in from beyond Ukraine. There's an organization called Wild Bees that is sending them in from Europe. These improvised munitions are not obviously a direct replacement for the factory-made sort. They can't exactly replace traditional artillery, but they do have a number of advantages. And what are those? Well, for starters, they're cheap. One of the Wild Bees printers, a guy based in Lodz, Poland, I spoke with, Emanuel Zamidzinski, makes the components for a candy bomb 27 centimeters tall. They call it the Big Egg. He says his production cost is about €3.50. He's working on a 3D printer that he purchased for about $1,200. Another advantage that in some respects may even be more important is that 
Candy bombs can be made in all sorts of weights and sizes, which means you can make better use of the payload that the drone you're operating can carry. Some of the candy bombs are even designed to specialize shape charges, which are used against armored vehicles. Now, you say these things can't be a replacement for standard munitions, but, but how effective are they? Actually, surprisingly so. One of the Ukrainian soldiers I spoke to, he's based in Donetsk province, tells me that candy bombs weighing five kilograms designed for anti-personnel effect are killing exposed infantry even 20 meters out from where they land. Now that's of course more effective than a hand grenade and there's a lot of innovation taking place with bomb techies trying to extend the kill radius even more. Now a lot of that has to do with designing different types of shrapnel systems and in fact some of the People I spoke with said that they're uh, using software modeling and even chat GPT and AI language model uh, for engineering tips, trying to figure out ways to better distribute the shrapnel from explosions. So all of it sounds very useful. It's cheap. But the problem here, it seems, is they just simply can't make enough of them on these artisanal lines. Well, one of the interesting things is the bombs have proven so effective. Ukraine's army has set up at least 11 production facilities that it's running with military personnel. In fact, I spoke with the manager of one of these factories based in Donetsk province. It's called the Laboratory, and he's operating a team of 20 soldiers making these bombs full-time. And so uh, private volunteer innovation, if you will, is now being incorporated and absorbed into Ukraine's more traditional defense industrial complex with the army itself making as many of these as they can. So in a sense, these things that started out with the advantages of being not along the normal line of munitions are becoming kind of exactly that. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, one of the issues is that there have been so many workshops producing these. One of my sources said about 200 different types and sizes of candy bombs are currently being dropped in Ukraine. They are trying to standardize production, reduce the number of sizes to uh, facilitate the logistics tail. Keep in mind that a lot of the parts come from different workshops that have specialized in, say, making nose cones or tail fins. And so by reducing the sizes of these candy bombs, they're able to streamline production and distribution to get the equipment to the front lines. Thanks very much for joining us, Benjamin. Absolutely. Always a pleasure. Thank you. past 20 years, rents have grown much faster than wages have in America. Now that means that for a lot of Americans, housing costs have become an even bigger strain on pockets. So, our colleagues at The Economist created a new index to classify cities from the most unaffordable to the least. So we've developed a new index named after Carrie Bradshaw, the protagonist of Sex and City. Now, she lived alone by choice in New York City well into her 30s, which even in 1998 may have been slightly implausible, but things have certainly got a lot worse now. Lizzie Pete is a researcher at The Economist based in New York. By our calculations, in many cities, even the most basic apartments are now unaffordable for the average person, especially those who want to live alone like Carrie Bradshaw did. So how exactly does this index work? 
So we developed it to find cities where a studio apartment is within reach for the average earner using pay data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And we calculated the ratio of the median salary in 100 American cities to the salary needed to afford rent on a studio apartment. And most financial institutions recommend that you don't spend more than 30% of your gross salary on rent. So anywhere that's classified as affordable is where you're spending under that typically for a median studio apartment. And what did you find? So in some places, the Bradshaw Index is actually greater than one, which means that living alone is affordable for most workers. For example, Seattle, big city on the West Coast, the $57,000 annual wage required by that calculation to comfortably afford a studio is actually less than the median wage of around $62,000. So that gives a city a Carrie Bradshaw score of 1.1. But if you look to the other side of the country, in Miami, the median salary of $44,000 is pretty far below the required $89,000 that you'd need to rent an apartment on our index, which gives it a score of 0.49. A value below one basically means a typical studio is unaffordable for a typical worker. Okay, so help us out here. Where should people not go if they want to be able to comfortably live alone? (laughs) I mean, that's the million dollar question. So if you look at our index, a total of 62 of the 100 cities have a score below one, which means they're not affordable. In bad news for anyone aspiring to be the next Carrie Bradshaw, New York is sadly at one extreme with an index value of 0.4. So the median salary in New York metropolitan area is actually only $57,000 which is less than half of what it's required to live comfortably alone, which I think would be $140,000. It's important to note that our data on rental prices focuses only on New York City itself and the wages are spread across the metropolitan area. But other parts of the East Coast also don't do much better. Boston and Jersey City also look pretty unaffordable with scores of 0.66 and 0.48 respectively. So this is clearly a problem reflected in a lot of these big East Coast cities. Okay, so... I don't think many people will be surprised that New York is relatively unaffordable. I mean, I can say that from personal experience. But what about other American cities? So I think that's one of the more interesting things about this index. As you say, a lot of the most unaffordable cities, sort of LA, San Francisco, New York, it's not much of a surprise that it's going to be a stretch to live alone there. But actually, many places with index values below one are spread across the south and west of the country, where several cities have seen rapid population growth in recent years, particularly since COVID. So take, for example, Charlotte in North Carolina. That has a score of 0.72. Now, it was one of the fastest growing big cities in 2022. So it's probably reasonable to guess that an influx of new renters has contributed to pushing up prices. Okay, so Lizzie, what does that leave us with? Where should we go? Well, so about 38 of the 100 we looked at had positive index scores. So there are some good options. Take, for example, St. Louis, Missouri. They have a median wage of $46,000, which is nearly one and a half times what you'd need to rent a studio, has an index value of 1.4. Or for those craving maybe a bigger city to live in, Cincinnati, Detroit or Minneapolis all offer pretty good value for money. And some cities, you could even get a separate living room if you think carefully. So cities like Tucson, Arizona or Kansas City in Missouri may see an influx of Carrie Bradshaw wannabes if rent prices remain sky high in other major cities. Lizzie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And you can take a look at our Bradshaw Index in full detail online in the graphic detail section at economist.com.
That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. We've got some news for you if you're a subscriber. The Economist's app now has a dedicated tab for this show and for all of our podcasts. It's the easiest way to tune in every single day. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, what are you waiting for? Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link, as always, is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.